Hello, welcome to Mikey Pod Podcast, episode 309 for November 11th, 2020. Today's guest is theater producer Marie Sisko, who has worked at the National Black Theater, the New Black Fest, the Lark, the Public Theater, and currently works as a producer for Lee Daniels Entertainment. Marie's current projects include working as a co-producer on the feature film U.S. versus Billie Holiday, directed by Lee Daniels, and Ms. Pat, a multicam pilot for Hulu, hello, directed by Debbie Allen, hello. We'll be talking about her work as a producer as well as her spreadsheet called Theaters Not Speaking Out, which maintains a list of theaters who did not speak out against injustices toward black people after the murder of George Floyd. I am your host, Michael Herron. I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversations with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been sending this podcast to your ears for over 15 years. If you like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons in the sidebar and footer at MikeyPod.com, or just search MikeyPod in your favorite podcast directory. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website at MichaelHerron.com. Hit me up on social media everywhere at as at Michael Heron or email me, MikeyPod at gmail.com. Hello. We are in a time. <laughs> I keep wanting to put timestamps on these podcasts because it feels like such a time. This is a time in the world, in the United States, that people are going to be talking about for a very long time. I mean, it's true, I guess, of all t- periods of time. We always talk about history. But um, this is a particularly interesting time. The election was last week. Um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won, which is very exciting. Um, but Donald Trump is, ah, I said his name. I almost want to go back and cut that out, but I'll just leave it. I I feel like that name needs a trigger warning. Um, but that person is contesting and there are lawsuits, all kinds of stuff. You know, if you're listening to this now, you know, and probably, you know, you probably know the outcome of where we're headed with this. I'm clinging to the belief that all of this is just bluster and um, even places like Fox News are not buying it. So, yay? <laughs> Hopefully we'll be we'll move right on past this. Um, yeah, so the one thing I want to make sure I do for this episode, speaking of tr- trigger warnings, um, in this conversation with Marie Sisko, I don't want to go too much into it, but um, I made a sort of tone-deaf or asked a pretty tone-deaf question. Um, if you listen to that and you're triggered by that sort of thing, as many people rightfully could be because of having to deal with that a lot, um, my apologies. And also, I'm leaving it in because of the conversation that came after it. I think it's really important um, as a person who's growing in my own work to be anti-racist, um, I'm going to make mistakes and I have blind spots. Um, many of you probably do as well. So it's okay. Um, be willing to make a mistake and keep moving forward and learning. That's that's how we learn. So <laughs> there's one other thing I want to talk to you about. And that is um, a podcast I'm going to be a guest on this Saturday. It's called This Is Today uh, by X Audio Podcasts. And it's a, it's a podcast that talks about... Publishes every single day, which is amazing to begin with. But they talk about what happened that day in history. So we talked about something cool. I won't tell you about, um, but it was sort of a fun conversation. So all of that said, I'd like to give a quick thank you to my subscribers on Patreon who power this podcast. These are folks who subscribe for five dollars or more a month and get special perks like tons of free downloads of my music and zines. Side note: 
there's a new zine in the works. Um, more on that later. It's being edited. Um, I'm excited. Uh, and bonus podcasts. There are over 50 of these bonus podcasts, and you'll have immediate access to all of them when you subscribe. And this Wednesday, I'll be posting an exclusive, deeper conversation with this week's guest, Marie Cisco. That's it. That's the intro. And we're going to go right into the conversation. No music today. We got to get right into it. So here's my conversation with Marie Cisco. Joining me now on the podcast is theater producer Marie Cisco. Thanks for joining me today, Marie. Hi, thank you for having me. We have so many different things we could talk about. I'm really excited about so much of your work, but the main thing on my mind right now is this amazing spreadsheet you have created. Is that a cool place to start? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the spreadsheet itself is called Theaters Not Speaking Out, and I feel like I'll just let you obviously tell me the backstory of this whole thing. I was in Atlanta. Um, I'm based in New York, but I went home fairly early in the quarantine process, um, somewhere early in March, just, you know, to get away from New York. Uh, home is Atlanta. And, um, you know, had a lot of downtime and all my work was remote. And so it's just sort of like watching the world do what the world was doing, which felt like crumbling. Um, and, you know, the death of George Floyd had happened. Um, we had learned that Black people were dying at a disproportionate rate from corona, um, and now the protests had erupted. Um, and it just was a lot going on. And I was in a group text with some friends and colleagues, and um, one of the, the people in the group text sent us a screenshot of one of the theaters that we had all worked at. And in the midst of all of this, they were posting, you know, something about like raising money for their gala, um, you know, and having some like virtual cocktail party. Right. And so I went and I scrolled on their page and I hadn't seen anything about, you know, the protests and what was happening within the black community and the um the uprising and the racial injustice against black people. And it was just baffling to me that this company and others that I saw um, began to pop up were posting business as usual while our brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles were being slain in the streets. Um, and these are places who we know receive um, diversity funding and so in a way use us as pawns for funding for their institutions, but yet don't speak up when our lives are at risk. Um, and it became very frustrating. And I had other friends in the business who were who were calling them out, um, you know, and not hiding behind um, blanket terms like this institution, like specifically calling out the theaters and um, how quiet they were. But not only being quiet, because there were a lot of theaters who, you know, had furloughed their marketing people and had shut down. So they weren't able, you know, those people who do post weren't in those positions. But the companies who were posting things completely unrelated and tone deaf things mm -hmm. um, in this moment were the, were the companies that really stood out the most. And so I decided to, I was like, you know, I bet there's more theaters who are being silent in this moment. Like, I bet this isn't just an isolated incident. And so I just, you know, opened up Excel on my computer and I typed in the two theaters that I um, 
had seen posting business as usual. And I sent it, I shared the Excel document with a group of maybe like 15 or 20 colleagues in the business. And I was like, Hey guys, I just noticed that, you know, a lot of these theaters are posting business as usual. Nobody is making statements. Nobody is making statements in solidarity with black lives matter. Nobody is making statements against police brutality towards um, black people, like nobody is saying anything in this moment. Like everybody's just figuring out how to do Zoom readings and how to raise money. Um, and I was like, you know, just add any theaters to it that you have noticed so we can sort of keep track of these places that aren't speaking up for us in this moment. And then I call a group on Facebook. And I honestly, I don't know. I think it's a few thousand, but I don't know exactly how many people are in that group. But I shared it with that group. And I was like, you know, they, they, you know, these institutions love to bring us in for their diversity play and for their this and for this funding and whatever, whatever, but won't speak out when their uncles and brothers and sisters are killing our family members in the streets. And I just want to sort of um, mark this moment in history of all the theaters that are not speaking out. So wherever you are, if you know, if you've seen anyone who hasn't made a statement, please add them to this list. And, um, at that time it was just a column for like the name of the theater, where it was located and who the artistic director was. And in like two days, there were over 300 theaters all across the country um, that had been added to this list. Wow. And after about three days, I, I closed it off. Um, cause it was, it was open to, to anyone to add to it. I closed it off because there were people going on there and deleting theaters. Oh, wow. uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of funny business that started to happen. Um, so I, I made the list private and I just had people start to send me things, um, that they names that they wanted to add. So then I would manually start to do it and then a friend and colleague of mine Victor Vasquez came to me and he was like hey I wanted to start a separate project where I take all the statements because after the the document went out a lot of theaters started putting out empty statements a to not be on the list or mm-hmm. b to um then be like okay I, I made a statement can you take me off the list and my response was no I'm not taking you off the list because my impetus to start the list was not a call to action for you to make a statement. It was to acknowledge folks who haven't made a statement and to have this living document always acknowledge in this moment who was quiet, right? So a lot of people were asking me to take them off and I was like, no. Um, and but Victor was like, you know, I want to take all the statements that are coming out and use it as a moment to, as an opportunity to hold these theaters accountable in the future. So if Blank Theater says, we are going to commit ourselves to a completely diverse season and, you know, 60% BIPOC artists and da da da. In five years, we can go back and actually look at what they've done and look at the statement and said, this is a statement you made five years ago or three years ago. Are you actually doing this? And then from there, the document began to grow and other people reached out to me um, after the LA Times article came out about the document and wanted to just help, you know, people made suggestions for additional columns. And so if you go on it now, I think maybe it's like 10 or 12 or even more columns where we uh, audited information such as like, who is the executive director and the artistic director? What is their, um, their race? What is the makeup of the board? What is the makeup, the demographic makeup of the city that they are serving? Have they done any anti-racism training? How many black playwrights or POC playwrights did they produce in their previous season? Um, so there's a lot of data that um, we began to gather and just sat down and, and just sort of did that work. And I think maybe there's like 400 theaters or something in the document altogether. Yeah, um, I'm looking at the document right now, and I didn't even think to scroll 
to the left. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow. Like, I was already like, this is a lot of information. And now yeah. it's like, whoa, no. It's even more than I originally realized. Sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to kind of throw that reaction out. Yeah. And just to highlight one of the columns that we had is, um, you know, when they made, when the theater eventually made a statement, did the statement explicitly say Black Lives Matter? Because what we learned is, and I can't remember who brought, made this point, but a lot of theaters would make statements saying, you know, we are against, you know, racial injustice and da da da, but would not explicitly say Black Lives Matter because they knew it would trigger a lot of their big donor base and funders. And so they were kind of like maneuvering around making the statement. So we wanted to also capture who was bold enough in this moment to actually make the statement Black Lives Matter. And a lot of people were not. It's terrible that this is needed, but right. it's, um, it's so great that this is here like i i love the way and i didn't pick it up at first until you said it that this just captures a moment in history of what how people responded to that moment that was like you know a turning point obviously yeah yeah i'm also in theater like small you know uh independent stuff but i'm but like fundraising is such an issue and this i i mean it has to it's really I don't even know what the question I'm asking is, but I mean, obviously these theaters need to stand up as being anti-racist and that black mm-hmm. lives matter. But then like, I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to say about this and I'm worried. It sounds like I'm making an excuse for them, which I'm absolutely not, but mm-hmm. they they get in this position of like, Oh my God, we're going to lose out on all this money that we're desperate for. Like uh-huh. what, like what's the way forward with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you have to, if you want to stand up in any sort of movement or moment like this, you have to know that part of that sacrifice, first of all, that it is a sacrifice, is a lot of people turning their back on you. And you have to make a conscious decision about what you're willing to lose. Um, And I think uh, you also have to take a moment to reevaluate your values. Um, Obviously, a theater company is a business and a business needs money to function. But if your value, your core values are to be of service to a community and to um, be anti-racist and to dismantle systems of white supremacy, then that has to be all encompassing. You can't choose when and where you are going to put your values first. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have to be willing to lose. And then you also have to be willing to go out and find money in different places. Every donor, every funder, every person who has money isn't racist. I don't believe that. You know right. what I mean? And so right. it, it may be pivoting and reevaluating and rebuilding what that donor or subscriber or funder base looks like um, and putting out the call that like we are no longer, you know, accepting money from people who do not uphold our values. And I promise you there will be people um, who will say, oh, I am in alignment with those values and I have money. Here is my money. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, but you have to be willing to a probably go through a year or two where you are struggling when you're trying to rebuild with these new values. When we talk about dismantling white supremacy, it's not a clean Passover. You know what I mean? It's not a smooth transition. You literally have to break something down in order to rebuild it. And when you break something down, it is going to take time to rebuild it. You have to figure out if you're architect, like, okay, what was the, you know, the foundation of this? What was supporting this building? 
Um, how do we recraft that? How long are we going to sort of be, you know, vulnerable in this space without the structure that has been carrying us for decades? Um, because you are vulnerable. Um, who are we bringing in as we rebuild? Um, what does this new infrastructure look like? What are the possibilities of it? Do we want to rebuild in the space that we're in? Do we want to rebuild in a new space? You know, part of the issues with these institutions is that when they were built way back whenever, um, there were no black people or people of color a part of that planning process. So the actual infrastructure of your organization um, was not inclusive of, inclusive of the people you are now attempting to include. And so people of color and black people will never completely fit into these institutions because it wasn't built with us in mind. And so when you dismantle, you bring in those people that you say you are now trying to include and make them a part of the planning process. Um, and so it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be smooth and you're probably not going to have the amount of money you had before. But if you're really about this life, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, really bringing in these values into your organization. And that probably looks like, completely redoing your mission statement, um, completely redoing your building, your, um, business plan. Um, it's not cute and it's, it's not comfortable and people have to get okay and wrap their mind around the idea that like to dismantle means to dismantle. It means some people may have to step aside and make room for other people equality is is not putting a band-aid on a situation um in order for things to be equal it means that some people have to be removed and other people um put into those spaces so that it's more balanced um some you know a lot of what's happening right now is that a lot of people of color are being appointed to associate director positions or you know sort of second level positions and institutions. And in a way it's a bandaid, you know, because mm -hmm. they still are not making the top down decisions. Um, it's, it's just for optics and it's because people don't want to be uncomfortable and step down. You know, it's, it's, it's like what, um, I can't remember his name. What is Serena Williams husband's name? He's a, was it, what's the company he, um, found it? Is it Reddit? I don't know what it is, but he, um, stepped down for the, from the board from his seat on the board and gave that position to a person of color. And like in some spaces, that's going to be what it has to look like in mm -hmm. order to create actual equality. Um, but people aren't ready to do that. And, and a lot of people won't be ready to do that. Um, and be, and it's because they know who their funders are and what they represent and what their values are. And if they say black lives matter, they're going to lose that check um, that supports their favorite program, you know, um, and, and so they're not going to do it, but you know, there's, there's no cute answer. I don't, I don't have a clear roadmap. All I can say is that, um, it's, it's not going to be comfortable and it's not going to be easy. And if you aren't willing to really disrupt the system, then I'm not willing to engage in a long-term conversation about how you can still, um, coddle with your racist donors, but then also try to be inclusive at the same time because those things do not go hand in hand. Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I love your answer. I was like, <laughs> as you were answering, part of me was like, what a stupid question. Like, you know, like, because like no. even, but uh, I, I mean, I think that's part of why I, I, you know, do this podcast in general, just to learn and like catch myself in things. But I don't even think of myself as a person who's 
really financially motivated in many ways. But the fact that that came up in my head makes me like, okay, like, is what's important here? What's right? Or, you know, have maintaining this theater or whatever it is. I, I love that thought that like, so this is what's right. Are you doing it or not? Like that's, that's it. Right. Well, a lot of people, I think, are thinking that. I think a lot of, you know, um, leaders of institutions or just people in the business are like, well, what do you expect us to do? Like, lose our funding and not... I think a lot of people are thinking like that. And, um, you know, it's a valid sort of knee-jerk reaction, especially in this moment where funding is so critical to just survival. But I think, you know, you can't... Like you said, like, you know the answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so you're asking it, but to also ask yourself, do I know the answer to this? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think people have to start doing that as well. Ask yourself two questions. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the part of the beautiful thing about, you know, letting your organization crumble, if that's what needs to happen for standing up for the right thing, is that you do have the opportunity to rebuild it in a way that's equitable to more mm-hmm. more people. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh, there's something else I was wondering about this. Um, <laughs> I'm super happy I'm talking to you. Um <laughs> about the spreadsheet and that is this idea of auditing which I, I didn't completely understand what that was can you talk a little bit about that yeah so the terminology in the context that we're using it is that we um so victor really managed this he brought on a team of like 40 volunteers who we divided up the theaters i think maybe yeah each person had like a chunk of theaters and um, they just went either to their website or to the you know depths of the of the internet and just basically like audited the demographics of their theater, um, audited what the um, the play makeup of of their season and who works there and who has worked there and like what programming they're doing and so auditing in the sense of just sort of going in and dissecting like what this place is to try to get an understanding of why the numbers are the way the numbers are based on what we learned um, from doing research on them. Mm. So that's what I mean by auditing. Um, And it's a part of an ongoing process. Like I'm working with a data analyst right now who's sort of taking this information and figuring out what questions it's asking us and what questions we want to ask of this data and sort of put it into a more tangible digestible um visual component where there's where there there will be charts and graphs sort of telling us different things about what's happening in the american theater um in this moment um and so you know i think from that we can kind of look historically and see how we got there um and then sort of plan for the future of of what we should be doing i know it's probably early to say but have you noticed any any shifts that you feel are connected to um to the document I think that there, so after the document came out, I feel, I know there are some that are completely connected and then some that probably aren't, but a lot of, um, just collectives, um, and initiatives to, to, um, to sort of gather different information that's sort of based off, um, this data. I know Stacey Rose and Keenan Gibson, after this came out, um, started to gather sort of like testimony and accounts of, of what people feel like they need from theaters to return. And that was something that I think was, um, cause Stacey was in the LA times article with me, um, that came out of the theaters not speaking out list. Um, I don't know if there's any like tangible, you know, I've had a lot of conversations 
with um, people in companies. And I think it definitely um, spurred people to sort of put into action what their plans are and acknowledging what issues there are. There was a company that um, I worked with who um, I just sort of sat back and watched all the emails happen, but they immediately got into like planning and Zoom calls and anti-racist practices and coming up with the proposal of like what they were going to be doing going forward and and all of these things. And I just, you know, wasn't a part of it. I just kind of watched it happen. Um, but I think, a, a, you know, a lot of those things started, started popping up. Um, I also engaged in a lot of conversations where people were really angry. Um, and some things started to happen where like, there would be like, let's say there's a, a, a group of companies in like the Midwest and like a similar area, you know, and a lot of these theaters are theaters I have never even heard of. Hmm. There would be one person who would reach out as like a representative and they'll be like, Hey, I'm a representative of like these five theaters in this area. We're all on the list and we have these questions and we also have these suggestions. And so I was in a lot of those conversations. Um, but it was mostly sort of like anti-list um, and you know, this is divisive. And so, um, I engage, I chose to engage and chose not to engage in, in some of those conversations, but yeah, I think, I think those are sort of the things that I've seen, um, coming out of it. Mm. It's, it's, I mean, obviously uh, change is needed and it's, it's cool to see it happening as, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's weird to comment on like, oh, I'm so happy this is happening because that, yeah. that you have to acknowledge like, holy shit, I like as a white person, I have to acknowledge like, and yeah, this has been happening. You know, there's a lot yeah, of like, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I also want to talk to you about your creative work. Like you make theater too. And I it would be mm-hmm. terrible not to <laughs> discuss that as well. Um, and the Black Joy Project is um, a, it's a big project that's happening currently, right? It's in, in motion. Yeah. So we just, um, wrapped up sort of the first iteration of it. We were, um, so it's with Jag Productions. Jag Productions hired me, um, Jag Productions is run by Jarvis Green. They're based out of White River Junction, Vermont. And, uh, Jarvis reached out to me because he, um, basically needed someone to help him produce it. And I was like, absolutely. And the project is created and spearheaded by Stevie Walker Webb, who's a New York based director. Mm-hmm. And Stevie basically had an idea where he wanted to create a a new methodology that is rooted in Black culture that decenters um, Western training and Western ways of making, um, and sort of pulls back to the traditional um, diasporic roots of of, of making. Um, so he wanted to create a methodology, and then he also wanted to write a play. Um, that's based off of this methodology. And so he said, you know, he wanted to bring 11 artists um, out to Vermont for a month to do exercises and and workshops and do some writing um, and figure out exactly what this methodology is, what it it means to exist in Black joy, what Black joy looks like, um, and all of these things. So that's what we did. Top of September, we went out to um, Vermont and we stayed on a farm, um, Knoll Farm, and um, 11 artists, two filmmakers, me, Jarvis, and Stevie. And for a month, they just sort of like worked and, you know, dug into this idea of what is Black joy and what does it look like and, and how do we make work that decenters whiteness um, and centers our joy. Um, whether you're in a white work making in a white space or, or working in a space that is predominantly black. 
Um, and we documented the whole process. And one of the things when we were out there, you know, Stevie was like, I feel like I just sort of want to focus on capturing um, and documenting what this process is because it feels so unprecedented to have 11 black artists um, on a farm in Vermont in like one of the whitest places ever <laughs> um, figuring out what black joy is, um, you know, on a farm stolen from uh, Native Americans and, you know, on sto- like it, there was just so many layers to it. So he was like, you know, I think I want to put the play on on pause and really just focus on like documenting this experience and what we're learning and what we're finding and like the ups and downs of it. And, um, and so, yeah, so we captured, you know, all of the, the, the sort of workshops and the exercises and the, the things that we discovered. And, you know, it was a, it was a myriad of people, um, from a lot of different backgrounds and, you know, black Americans and, uh, first generation and one of our filmmakers was Haitian. And, and so there was a lot of different perspectives, which was really great in trying to figure out what black joy is because the reality is it, it's as colorful as the diaspora, um, but so we shot this documentary and we're actually going away, um, for post-production next month in Tulum to sit in a house and, and edit this thing and figure out what it is. So it's an ongoing, um, project, but right now we're focusing on the documentary and Stevie's going to then start focusing on the play. But I feel like it's one of those things that's going to grow, um, like, you know, we might take a group somewhere on, you know, the continent of Africa to like do this experiment again and, and see what we find. Um, but it, it's a really beautiful project. Um, it's definitely a joy project and a passion project for me. Um, as I, you know, decenter myself from institutions and, um, from white practices and, and ways of making that are rooted in Western culture, this was really a great project to sort of dive into as I'm sort of like coming back up for air and figuring out what I want to be making and what I want to be doing. Um, but yeah, that's a black joy project. Uh, I, that sounds super exciting. Like I love projects or pieces of art that, that come out of a created experience like that. I, I'm sort of a DIY theater maker. So I'm often like, wait, now is there a name for that when they do that? Yeah. Is there like a name for doing that? Or is, did I? Some, I don't <laughs> think so. I don't, I mean, like you can call it a retreat, I guess, but like, like, you know, if we need to like label it something, I think we would do it a retreat. I yeah. also don't feel the need to like call it anything. I'm like, you know, we was just a bunch of black people in the woods, like on a farm, like, you know, making art and deciding what it is we want to do moving forward. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's like an official <laughs> yeah. thing for it. <laughs> I often feel sort of uncomfortable about naming, like naming positive things that have come out of this sort of fucked up time in the United States mm-hmm. and in the world. Yeah. But like this place where, I mean, not only do you have the motivation to decenter yourself from white theater, white theater creating but like everything is kind of fucked up right now anyway so what a great time to be like so what are we gonna do with this like right yeah there's a lot of creativity that's um being birthed in this moment you know like from people just being at home and not really having anything to do um to people like now being like i feel like now there's like a, a huge sort of burst of creativity and energy. It's almost like quarantine. We were like in the womb and now we're like birth. So we're like, what's up world? Like mm-hmm. I'm ready to, to make this stuff. Um, I think people have been reevaluating what they want 
Um, and what's important, I know I have, um, what's important to me, what's important to put my energy into, what's important to focus on. And when you start to focus your energy into things that are really important to you and meaningful to you, then you really start making and creating at your full potential. And so I think not only are we going to see a lot of new work, we're going to see a lot of really brilliant, exceptional work because people are tapping in and they're making from a place that is very focused and intentional versus where before quarantine, we were all kind of like running around like chickens with our heads cut off. And we, you know, it was like content, content, content. Mm-hmm. Um, you just got to get things out before somebody else gets it out so that people can see it. And now I think we're just, we're more intentional. So I think the work that we're, we're going to see is also going to be, um, is going to reflect that, um, that energy. Yay art. Yay. Like, oh. like, you know, <laughs> pulling something because, you know, and I, and maybe this is part of my womb state that I had, like you're, you're calling it that was perfect because mm-hmm. like at least the first half of this pandemic period, I spent a lot of time just at home, like what? Like mm-hmm. what, how, what's, how, what? Mm-hmm. Like just getting my head around mm-hmm. everything. Uh-huh. But this is this cool, yeah. like I, there's a, is, is it Kali? I think there's a goddess, a goddess named Kali who like is a person, is a, she destroys things, but with the goal of new things coming up. That's so I'm thinking Ooh, of her a lot. Yeah. Spell it, what's it? I, ugh, I think it's um K-H-A-L-I, but I could be wrong, and I am, like, fully appropriating another cu- culture I know nothing about. So <laughs> with that disclaimer, I'll look okay. I'll look her name up and, um, okay, great. and, like, send it to you, and I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast, too. Oh, great. Love it. Thank you. Yeah, Kali. I, I'll have to look her up. Um, so, yay, we should wrap this up. I want to make sure people know where to find the various things that you do. Is there, what's the best place to send people on the internet to learn more? Yeah, about you? so you can go to, people can go to www.ciscoproductions.com. I love it. And we did, we barely even talked about your production company. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I launched a production company. <laughs> I have some work in development. Um, I also work as a consultant, a development consultant for the Apollo. And so that's one of the the things that I'm um, sort of pushing along. Um, but yeah, I, I started a production company and I'm really excited about it. Um, I am sort of toggling about where to be based. So that's sort of a thing that's up in the air as the world is so uncertain. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, live events, so theater, film, TV, um, and any other, you know, crazy digital media things, people are sort of like doctoring up um, in their apartments. I'm also open and happy to just um, be a space where um, Black artists can come and feel safe and nurtured um, to develop and make work and create um, with someone who is um, culturally in tune with what it is that they are trying to do. Mm. So much. I, lo- I love I-, I love and hate getting to the end of an interview with like, oh, God, there's more. Um, if you are listening to this and feeling that way, too, this sounds like such a corny connection. We'll be doing another interview for my subscribers on Patreon. We'll do a little quick bonus interview, too. So if you want to hear more, you can always go to uh, patreon.com slash Michael Heron. And um, also, of course, check out um, Marie's website and all these various things, which will be listed in the show notes of this episode as well. Marie Cisco, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was fun. And so we come to the end of another episode of Mikey Pod. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to 
check back in about my trigger warning, quote unquote, from the beginning of the podcast. I don't know if trigger warning is the right name. It was sort of, it was an advanced warning that you're going to hear basically some white nonsense from me during this interview. Now that I've listened to it again, I want to really like sort of underscore that I get what happened there because I think it's important to um, point it out to other people. Um, so you may not have the same blind spot and also just to sort of take ownership of the fact that that was a pretty fucked up thing <laughs> that I asked. Um, what I, it was the spot, you probably know what I'm talking about where I was saying, um, I, I asked about the theaters, like, well, what about these theaters that have money that, that are really worried about surviving if they speak up for black lives? That question was centering <laughs> white people. Like it was centering the whole thing that this, this podcast was about, like the whole conversation about her document was about <laughs> taking white people out of the center of theater and making it equitable for everyone. And my question put white people back in the center. So I, I'm saying that just for the sake of people who are listening, I want you to know that I think I I understand the intricacies of that. If I don't, I welcome you explaining it to me further. I mean, I feel like I got it as she was answering the question because you hear me like, oh, God. Um, but also for people who are listening to this, maybe that isn't something you considered. And it is really scary to think about like, oh, my God, this whole are like my theater, whoever like person who has a theater is funded by white supremacy. It exists because of white supremacy and it centers white people. It's scary to try to figure out how to back out of that, but uh, you have to, like, you got to figure it out uh, because it's not okay the way this stuff works. So thanks for listening to that. I, I did the intro to this podcast probably close to 10 times because I kept finding myself as I was trying to give that kind of trigger warning, which I think was apt, um, I found myself like recentering my own whiteness. And this is why I'm doing this at the end, because you could just turn me off if you've heard enough of this bullshit. Um, but I, I feel like saying it out loud in case someone else needs to hear this too. Like I was started talking about how hard, like while I was trying to, to uh, take responsibility, I was also started like talking about how hard it was <laughs> to figure out that is me centering myself again. So anyway, I'm, I'm learning this stuff and uh, it feels awkward and maybe a little weird and perhaps, uh, what's the word presentational, uh, to do it on the podcast, but I think it applies to what's, I think this process is important. Uh, so I hope it seems that way to you too. I'm always open to feedback about this stream of consciousness as I try to figure out. And, you know, I want to stand for anti-racism and I have to learn how to do that better. So that's the takeaway from this. And I feel like figuring that little blind spot out in, in the middle, like, I don't need to say it again. Um, but I, I'm, I'm grateful for that moment. I'm, and, uh, I'm grateful to be someone that isn't going to do that again. I'm, I'm sure I got some other blind spots I'm not aware of yet. Um, but yeah, we're learning, right? So anyway, thank you for listening to the podcast this week. If you want to hear more from me and Marie, you could go to patreon.com slash Michael Heron. Um, and we have a little bonus conversation that will go up probably tomorrow. And um, as well as like 50 some odd other bonus conversations. And uh, that's it. I'll see you next week. Ah, I feel really awkward about leaving this 
this whole blurb at the end here, but I think it's important. And if I'm full of shit and I'm an asshole, please tell me that too. Okay, bye.